0: You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Amen. We've got uh, the apostles and brethren, verse 1. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. There's a little game that I grew up playing in elementary school out on the playground called Red Rover, Red Rover. I don't know if anyone ever played that, but uh, I grew up, happened to be in first and second grade with my wife. We weren't married at the time, in case you're wondering what kind of people come from Klamath Falls. But, uh, you know, we played this game where uh, you would divide your, your class into two different groups. And one group stood opposite you, facing you in a line, and then you stood in a line facing that group holding hands with that group. Now, as uh, the game began, one side would say, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Rory right over. Okay. So I would let go of the hands in my group and I would get a winding up run and I would start running towards that other group. Now, their goal was to hold hands as tight as they could and not let me get through. And if I got through, I said it wrong in first service because it's been 21 years or more since I played this game. If I got through, I got to take somebody from my side over uh, to, to be on my team. If I didn't get through, I had to stay on this team. Now, I totally butchered at first service because I couldn't remember how the game actually went. So let's just let's modify it a little for this situation. Uh, basically, what's happening is you've got Jesus and he's made this call out to the whole world to believe in his name and be saved. From the beginning of really the inception of Israel, of, of, from Abraham, he's had a mission for Abraham and his people, the Jews, to be missionaries to the world, to be lights of the world, that they would draw people unto him. And we're at this incredible time in church history when Jesus is calling out, Red Rover, Red Rover, send the Gentiles on over. And as, as uh, the Gentiles are trying to run and come to the kingdom, you've got these Jewish Christians that are holding so tight, no one can get through. No one can come in, And in my version of it, join the team by busting through the ranks. They, these people were so tight-fisted. No one's coming in. No one's coming in. That's outside of of Israel. The whole concept of Gentiles being saved was just—it was a foreign concept uh, to even the Jewish Christians. Now, remember who who's speaking here? You know, it, it sounds like Pharisees, but it's not Pharisees. Or it sounds like scribes, but it's not scribes. It's it's. People coming up and contending with them, verse 3, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Sounds just like the Pharisees. Sounds just like the scribes, but it's neither. These are brethren in Jerusalem. These are apostles. These are Christians. These are people that should have an idea, especially with the time these apostles spent with Jesus, of God's overlying theme Of saving the whole world and using the Jews as missionaries. And so, you you know, as you read these words, the the circumcision, these Christian Jews uh, contended and wavered and opposed what was happening with the Gentiles. And remember in chapter 10, Peter had been called by the Holy Spirit to go to the house of Cornelius Cornelius was a Roman centurion who the Lord had been preparing to be saved. And as Peter came into the house of Cornelius in obedience uh, to to the Lord, uh, Cornelius and all of his household ended up being saved as the gospel was preached. And as the Jews back down in Jerusalem heard this, they wavered. They opposed. This was uncomfortable to them. What, What are you saying? You're saying you went into the house of a Roman centurion And you ate with them? You know, it's almost the exact phraseology of those Pharisees. When back in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, Jesus is walking along the road. He sees Levi, a tax collector, collecting taxes. And he says, hey, man, come follow me. And Levi stood up immediately and followed after Jesus. And the Lord changed his name to Matthew. Giver of gifts is what that means. He went from being a tax collector to a giver of gifts. And and then Jesus followed him to his house and Jesus sat down and began to eat with Matthew and his friends. And it says the Pharisees saw this, that him and his disciples were eating with this tax collector and these sinners. And they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard this. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, and go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I'm not called to come to, to call the, the uh, righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. You know, the Lord came to seek and save those that were lost, both Jews and Gentiles. Then in Luke chapter 15, there's another uh, similar account where tax collectors drew near To Jesus And sinners drew near to Jesus to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes commented saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so then he began to speak parables to them. He spoke the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, where where the son was tired of working for his dad. He decided to, to claim his inheritance right then and there and to go out and spend it and live and eat and drink. And partake of the pleasures of this world. And he went out and he didn't budget very well. And he ended up spending all his money real quick. And the passing pleasures of sin ended up fading away. And there he is. Only way he can eat is to work for a pig farmer and and, and eat the food that the pigs are eating. Tell he says, you know what? Man, this is horrible. I'll go back to dad. I'll apologize to dad. and, And perhaps I can at least be a servant of my dad. And you guys know the story. The prodigal son went home and as he was at the end of the lane, the father saw him and ran out and greeted him and, and embraced him then took off the filthy clothes and put on a robe of right standingness with him. And he took off his own ring and put his ring on this son's finger and said, you know, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party tonight. You know, the, the son that was lost has been found. But then there's that older brother that's sitting back pouting The brother that felt like he had been the faithful one. I'm faithful. I was here the whole time and and you haven't, uh, you know, given me the party. You haven't given me the robe. You haven't given me the ring. And Jesus is just correcting these Pharisees' attitudes. They should be rejoicing that the sinners and the tax collectors are, are, are being loved on by the Savior. Are coming to know salvation. Are coming to know Jesus. And so they asked him, you know, in modern day, Peter's day, you know, they find out about Peter's encounter with Cornelius and what happened there. And they say, you ate with them? You dip your, your bread in the same bowl as them? You know, to them, that was like the epitome of fellowship. That was the epitome of union. You know, it, it's like, you know, when you share a, a, a bowl or an hors d'oeuvre with somebody, you know, what's happening? Double dipping is going on you know people forget that they double dipped and they still double dipped you know and you're I mean it's like oh you know there's a there's a sharing that's happening here someone puts their chip in and it breaks off when they're you know trying to get some salsa you know and then they just leave their chip in there rudely you know they don't even think about others that are coming in after them. you know and uh isn't that a little gross someone else's half chip broken off. okay I'm weird (laughs) paranoid But, uh, you know, to them, there was this union that happened in meal and this community dish, you know, putting the the bread and dipping out the hummus. You know, that's what will happen now if you go over there. And and, and it was just uh, appalling that this would happen, that Peter would do this, you know, and that you would go, as it says there in verse three, to the uncircumcised. And, you know, Paul later on touches on this in Romans chapter two, verse 28. He says, you know, he is not a Jew, who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, the the cutting away of the flesh of the male reproductive organ. That is not the epitome of circumcision. We would think it would be, but he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not the letter, not the law, Not the physical cutting away of the foreskin. But if you want to be a Jew, be a Jew in your heart. Have your heart circumcised. Have the work of the Spirit happen in you where your flesh is cut away. He goes on to say, your praise won't be from men, but your praise will be from God. You know, in the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female circumcised nor uncircumcised, black or white, you know, Asian or African, north of the border or south of the border. You know, there's none of that in the kingdom. He's not a respecter of persons in those senses, those outward appearances, but he looks at the heart. He looks at the heart and he wanted his people, the Jews, and especially these apostles, Jewish Christians, Hebrew backgrounds, from Hebrew stock. He wanted them to be the light of the world. And so they contended with him. They argued with him. They wrestled with him. They wavered and they opposed this decision for Peter to go to Caesarea, go into Cornelius's house. And in verse four, we see Peter standing his ground to these brothers in defense of God's grace But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. He explains to them, and and it's encouraging to see him standing his ground against kind of the big wigs. You know, sure he was part of the big wigs of of the uh, leadership of the church in that day. But still, you know, he's going up against the rest of the guys who are all in disagreement of him. You know, I I love that he's bold here, I love that he stands up, but in a couple of years we're going to see him in uh, Antioch in Galatians chapter 2 Paul tells this story that Paul didn't always stand firm you know that's encouraging to me that Peter didn't always stand firm that's an encouragement to me because there's times when I have tremendous victory in standing up for the gospel or standing up for holiness there's standing up for morals or standing up for you know the the the, the, the good things of God and then there's times when man, I struggle or I mess up or I fail. I can be so discouraged. But then to see that Peter, who here in Acts 11, stands up to the leadership of the church and defends God's grace given to the Gentiles. But then in Galatians chapter two, you can flip over there. Verse 11. It said, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would sit with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with this hypocrisy. So, you know, Paul says, man, there was a time I went to Antioch. I had to get in Peter's face. The same guy that was defending the Gentiles and defending the uncircumcised was in Antioch and he saw as he was eating there and having fellowship with these uncircumcised people, he saw the Jewish Christians coming and he was worried of that conflict again. He was worrying of that opposition. So he got up and acted like he had to go get a pop from the machine or something, you know, just anything to kind of get away from this situation that's going to cause conflict here. And Paul just rebuked him and corrected him. You can read all that Paul said there in Galatians chapter two, but really he's he's saying to him, man, Peter, you were right back in Acts 11. Peter, you were right in defending the, the gospel to the Gentiles. It's not about the outward circumcision, the outward appearance, Peter. It's about that inward change that the Holy Spirit works in a person's life. As he cuts away the flesh, he cuts away the desire for sinful things. He cuts away... Uh, that desire to rebel against God and puts in you a, a soft heart, a heart of flesh. So encouraging to see that the same Peter that, that, that stood and defended is the same Peter that, that stumbled into hypocrisy and even led Barnabas, the son of encouragement, off into the hypocrisy. But here he stands in Acts 11 and we'll stay there today. We'll stay in his stand. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean is at any time entered my mouth. But the, voice of, but the voice answered me again from heaven, Well, God is cleansed. You must not call common. Now, this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having sent, uh, been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Uh, Men of Joppa, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, and he will tell you the words by which you and your household will be saved. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as I remember, as upon us at the beginning. And so he tells the story of uh, before actually going to Caesarea and the sheet descending down from heaven and, and then the sheet coming back and forth three times, he argued with God saying, not so Lord, I won't eat. And the Lord rebuking him saying, don't tell me not so don't, don't tell me what I've called clean is unclean three different times. He argued and you know, as you get to Acts chapter 11, there's a strange struggle for a preacher because you know, he, he wants to almost skip this section. And make little of it. Oh, there was an error here, you know. That was a bad idea to tell the whole story again. Because we've read it in Acts chapter 10. The whole story is there in Acts chapter 10. Some of it even repeated in Acts chapter 10. We hear it three times. But you know, the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he put this in. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing in Acts chapter 11 when he inspired Luke to write the words onto the page. And to retell the story in Cornelius' household you know, I remember just this, this thing stuck with me for the last 16 years however long it's been, since my freshman year in biology, not in college, this is high school, I wasn't, I, I learned my lesson in high school not to take it in college, right? So, uh, so freshman biology class, genius of a biology teacher, except he really was a fool because he denied the creator, but anyways, you know, he, he would always tell us, you know, if I repeat it, it's on the test. So if you hear me repeating it, you write it in your notes and you own it because it's on the test. You know, repetition, it's been said, is the key to knowledge. And so here we're having this repeated story of God calling out and doing a radical work in the Gentiles and bringing them to salvation and using people who who struggled with that idea, who thought they were unclean, who weren't comfortable with immediately being sent out as missionaries to this group of people. We're we're told of the struggle because the struggles in us, even today, even though two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 10 and we did the big in-depth study verse by verse about God's heart for the Gentiles, God's heart for for the people that we so often have prejudices against or stereotypes against. And we reject them because they're unclean or they're not worth it. Or I don't like them. I like this group of people. So I'm going to minister to this group of people, but not that group of people. And it's still in us. Even after two weeks, having, having studied Acts chapter 10, it's still in me. And we need this repetition. I'm glad that we're here again because it's on the test. It's on the test. As we're commanded by Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples. That's not just the comfy little cozy areas of the people that have the same personal hygiene habits of us or, or, you know, or, or the, the disciplines that we have in that area or speak the same language or have the same accent or this or that or same colored skin. And, and we are amiss and we are failing miserably in our mission to get the gospel if we let any form of prejudice in any shape whatsoever of any kind Whether it be physical appearance, color of teeth, number of teeth, amount of hair on a head, you know, whatever it is, it is ridiculous to have a prejudice in your heart and to call somebody unclean that they're not worth the gospel. And so I'm going to shun them. I'm going to move away from them. I'm not going to eat with them. Man, what if Jesus would have done that to us? When he, on his throne in glory, with all of the comforts and privileges and pleasures of paradise, said, you know what? They rejected me. It's a cesspool of rebellious, stiff-necked people down there. I already know that if I go down there, they're going to murder me. So you know what? I'm just going to either leave them to themselves to destroy themselves, or I'm just going to blow them up. They're not worth my time. They're not worth my energy. He never said that. But he in his abundant love set aside the privileges of deity, stepped away from the throne and came to the earth as a humble servant. And he lived among us and he was tempted like we were. And he put up with our garbage. And he was mocked and he was beaten and he was spat upon and he had his beard ripped out and he had a, a, a crown of thorns placed upon his head in mockery of his kingdom. He had a robe of scarlet put upon his back in mockery of his dominion. And he was laid down on a Roman cross and had nails and spikes driven, driven through his, his hands and his feet. And then he was raised up in nakedness to be mocked by a Roman road. If there was anybody that should have had a prejudice, if there was anybody that should have been grossed out, if there was anybody that should have said, you know what? I'm too good. I'm too good. I've got it figured out. I've got a good cleanliness habit going on here. I've got a great personality. And those people are jerks. Let them to to themselves. Jesus could have done that. But he didn't. He's the example for us. And even in the last two weeks, the Lord's been working in me. I don't care what they look like. I don't care where they're from. And it's just, it's convicting, isn't it? When you see a people group and you go, I'm glad I'm not called there, you know, really, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm not racist. I love black people, you know? And then I see a, a group of people that are looking for a leprechaun in Mobile, Alabama, you know, and they're, they're excited because there's like a leprechaun and then they're all like making jokes and stuff and they seem hard and scary and mean and whatever. It's YouTube it. Leprechaun in Mobile, Alabama, you know? And you're like, Oh, I'm glad that I'm not, Oh, those people, you know, it's like those people, you were that people, Rory. Prineville were those people. If there's any form of prejudice, The type of accent somebody has. If they're from north of the border, south of the border, whatever it is, we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to cry out for God's heart for the lost. The same heart that Jesus had, that it would be placed in us. And I'm so thankful that it's repeated. That today and, you know, last night and Thursday as I was studying, that I could think about, Lord, show me any form of prejudice. Oh, yep, that's a prejudice. Lord, take that away from me. Oh, that person smokes. Well, I don't, I don't minister to the smokers, you know. I don't want to smell that. What are you talking about? We all have our own scent, am I right? You know, oh, I don't, you know. Oh, uh, that that that's just not me. I don't I no, I I go up to the, the mansions on the hill and I, you know, the the nice car. You know. Lord, get us out of that mindset. Get us out of that mindset. And so Peter repeats it again to his brothers that they could understand that we should not be calling anything common or unclean. And uh, notice in verse 14, you know, we've touched on this, but since we're in the text, we're in the passage, that, that Peter was to tell Cornelius the words by which you and all your household or him and all his household would be saved. There, there are words of salvation, the gospel. The gospel. The good news that tells people that the process of salvation. You know, have you heard those words? That that Jesus came to save sinners. And that if you would believe on him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you heard that? Have you believed on that? Are you saved today? Saved is such a cliche word that gets thrown around are you saved? Saved from what? Saved from yourself? Saved from sin and the consequences of sin? And saved from the judgment of eternal condemnation that is rightly due to you for your rebellion against God? Are you saved from that? Well, the opposite of being saved is to be condemned, is to be in danger. Nobody likes to be in danger. Everyone wants to be saved. That word saves, awesome. Save money. Save someone from drowning, you know. Save up for the winter, whatever, you know. Save. We need to be saved. You need to be saved. Cornelius needed to be saved. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And there's that Greek word upon. It's the word epi. And it's that third work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life where he comes upon and he overflows. He baptizes uh, the, the believer with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the person of the Holy Spirit, and torrents of the Holy Spirit will powerfully move through a believer's life that he or she might be bold to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the words of that life. And, and you know, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning, as upon us on the day of Pentecost. And and, uh, verse 16, then I remembered the words of the Lord back in Acts chapter one, when he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I remembered that. And again, repetition is the key to knowledge, you guys. We keep reading about this epi of the Holy Spirit. We keep reading about this continual filling of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life that we might have power to be witnesses because we don't have the strength in and of ourselves. And I'm glad for these passages that that keep coming up about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the continual filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm glad that Peter takes us back to Acts chapter 1. You know, and we can remember that, yes, you know, John baptized with water under repentance. But Jesus baptizes with the person of the Holy Spirit for boldness to be witnesses. And we can ask ourselves, do I have that power? We can examine our Christian life and say, do I have, am I a powerful witness? Am I a bold Christian? Or am I just a Christian that's content on getting by and never opening my mouth about the gospel? Or am I a book of Acts Christian? Man, if you're not a book of Acts Christian, bold and willing to go to Caesarea and meet with a Roman guy you never know and preach to his house the gospel, pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, ask yourself, have I been baptized with the Holy Spirit? If not, cry out for that filling, that continual filling. I remember when I was 14 years old, when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and there was just a change in me that I went from just loving Jesus and believing in Jesus, and and I was a bold proclaimer of Jesus. Boldness, not afraid to tell anybody about him like going out of my way to tell people about Jesus. Ended on myself, I was a chicken. I was a scaredy cat. No way I'm doing that. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, man, I'm telling every person I'd sit by in my classes, my biology class, evolution's being taught. I'm a 14-year-old kid that's telling people about Jesus. I'm telling my evolution teacher, dude, you gotta like read the word, man. You gotta come to Jesus. You can see how he's the creator of all things. And, And no fear, boldness. And times would come where I'd struggle with fear again. I'd say, Lord, Let the Holy Spirit continually fill me, continually overflow in me. Cry out for that. Cry out that you could be like Peter and like the early church. And he says in verse 17, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? You know remember the evidence in this case, an evidence of this baptism of the Holy Spirit with Cornelius' household, was the speaking in tongues, not the only evidence, but an evidence, nonetheless. And it was able to show Peter, "You know what? They're having the same experience we had at the day of Pentecost. And when Jesus told me to go, he said, "Go and don't doubt, and I'm just getting to see this confirmation here. And now as I go back to Jerusalem and they're challenging the work that happened in Caesarea. One of the proofs of their salvation and the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit is this work that happened uh, as they were baptized with the Spirit, as they began to speak in tongues. Just an evidence of the manifestation of the Spirit. And he was able to use that as proof and proof it was indeed. Because they went on to say, verse 18, when they heard about this proof, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Isn't that amazing how everything that they'd learned from the rabbis about don't even touch a Gentile. All a Gentile is good for is fueling the fires of hell. You know, all the things that they've been taught in, in tradition and growing up, the Lord is still working out of them. Today, they got to see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the Gentiles' lives, and they rejoiced saying it's true, it's happened. God can save the unclean and make them clean. Jesus goes to the highways and the byways and he can save to the guttermost, to the uttermost, as Hebrews says. And they rejoiced when they heard that. And, uh, and then we see here that it was God, at the end of verse 18, it was God That granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. There's those two pillars of theology that go up into heaven. One side, God's sovereignty. That it's God that grants repentance. Repentance is a gift. Amen. God grants. There's also the pillar that man must repent. It's a mystery. I I can't begin to claim to have it figured out. But I know they're both in the scripture. Man or God calls. God gifts. God gives the gift and extends the gift of salvation and repentance. No man comes to Jesus unless the father draws him in John chapter 6. But then also the Philippian jailer cries out to Paul and Silas, Men, what must I do to be saved? You need to repent. Repent. And believe on the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved in all your household. Repent. And Jesus says in Luke 13, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's no excuse to say, well, God just hasn't granted to me repentance yet. So I'm just going to keep living in this filth that I'm living in. Sorry. Today, if you're hearing this message, God is granting you repentance. He's telling you that the gift is there for repentance. Now you need to respond to that loving gift by receiving that repentance. It's been said that the sinner and hell are married, but repentance proclaims the divorce. So thankful for that divorce. Hell, I was on my way there, but God has granted to me repentance. And notice he granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. You know, where there's no repentance, there's no Christianity. So there's, this, there's a repentance to life. Does that mean there's, there's also a repentance that doesn't lead to life? We're going to look at, and you can search all this to scripture, uh, but we're going to look at that there is a repentance that doesn't lead to life. It's a false repentance. Again, okay? I encourage you, if you've got notepaper, write these things down. Look at them in the scripture. In, in, in the same way, there's this, there's this balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There's also a balance here as we study uh, repentance. Okay, so we're going to look at it here. Number one, a false repentance. Okay, Trembling beneath the sound of the gospel alone is not repentance. If you only have a fear as the preacher preaches that you're going to hell and you begin to tremble and your knees begin to knock together and your heart begins to pump faster as the preacher's preaching and that's where it stops is it ended with this fear. Man, I remember when that guy was teaching, I just, I just whoa, man. I just was like, Whoa whoa you know and we send we tend to think we're very emotional people we tend to think if we have some sort of physical feeling or emotion that that something incredible has happened well it's true something incredible has happened you've been convicted of your sin and you begin to have this fear in you but for whatever reason you chose to let it just stop with having fear you chose to just stop at having fear. Now we can look at Acts chapter 24, verse 25. I don't want to spoil too much of it because I look forward to the day that we're there and we get to look through the whole thing. But Paul is there in Caesarea and he's in chains. And I've been to this Colosseum where he gave his defense here. It's incredible, original stones there. As he stood there, he stood before Fest- or excuse me, Felix, Felix, a, a governor of the area. And it says there that he reasoned with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. As Felix, as I believe, and it's been a long time since I've in-depth studied it, but I believe Felix was having an affair uh, with his sister-in-law. Okay, so here's here's the guy that's in sin, and here's the preacher speaking to the man that's in sin. And there's powerful words coming out of Paul's mouth. Reasoning. Causing Felix to think, causing him to to ponder what he's done and the outcome, and and what he did did to Jesus. You can bet Jesus came up in the preaching. And it says that as he reasoned about righteousness, Felix, you need to be made righteous. Felix, you need to have self control, and right now you're not showing that you have that by you know just sleeping with your brother's wife man and Felix you're gonna stand before Jesus in judgment I plead with you come to Christ repent Felix and as he reasoned it says Felix was afraid he was afraid he trembled as the gospel went forth he trembled as the word struck his heartstrings. but this is what he said Go away for now, and when I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. So it ended at the trembling, not now, not right now, go away some other time. And you know what, it ends up that for the next two years, he kept having Paul come back and talk to him, but there was never a recorded change in his life. You know, Felix most likely is in hell today. Unless he's repented and it's not recorded that he did, he's in hell. I spoke with a guy this week at the Oasis and I just pled with him to repent. And he was so soft. And as I've been teaching through Matthew, he's just like nodding and listening. And I just said, dude, today... Today's the day of salvation. Oh, I want to hold on to some of this stuff. And, and you know, I got to clean my life up first. I'm like, no, dude. Today is the day of salvation. Don't say tomorrow. You're hardening your heart. Don't say tomorrow. And, and, and uh, it's just sad. He, he just he rejected the gift of repentance that was extended to him that day. And I just have written in my notes, Lord, extend the gift again to him. Lord, and, and help him and help me to help him. Uh, understand and to grasp hold of repentance but Felix had this trembling and this fear but he suppressed it and he said some other time some other time then you have Herod Agrippa there in Caesarea as well in chapter 26 of Acts and Paul pleads with him literally pleading with him to come to Jesus and Herod Agrippa says you know what you almost persuade me to become a Christian And he says, no, I don't just want to persuade you. I will that you be just as I am, except for these chains. He pled with Agrippa. And and Agrippa had a little bit of something going on. Almost. i was almost there. You guys know what almost is? Almost is not enough. And to give a kind of an example is, I don't know, Man, I hope that you haven't had to be there yet, but for those of you that have lost a loved one or been with someone when they've passed away, And you've stood by their their tent that no longer has a soul in it, no longer has breath in it. And immediately after they've died, they look as if they just went to sleep. They still have color in their skin. You know, they they don't, you know, and I don't mean to be graphic, but, you know, just the process of they don't smell yet. You know, they, they look peaceful. They, you know, it almost seems like they're alive. And many people, after their loved one dies, they still talk to their loved one as if they're there. That's not biblical, you guys. We absent from the bodies to be present uh, with the Lord. Unless they're a non-believer, then they're, you know, in Hades right now. But okay, anyways, it's a whole other Bible study. You know, uh, um, know, we talk to him. You know, he looks, uh, a few more words, blah, 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 blah. He's not hearing you. The little hammer and anvil in his ears aren't functioning because there's no life there. He's dead. She's dead. So is the person that had some sort of experience and was almost made alive in Christ, but suppressed that, they're a corpse. And if that's you, you're a corpse. You are dead spiritually. The good news is is today, repentance is being granted to you. You can have newness of life in Christ. You don't have to stay dead. So one mark, one mark of False repentance is just, you had a a fearful experience as the gospel was preached. You know, maybe even caused your eyes to water a little bit or something. Another mark of a false repentance or repentance that is not to life is sorrow without repentance. So just as there was a terror or a fear without repentance, now there can be also a sorrow without repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 at the end of the verse says, the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. The sorrow of the world produces death. And uh, an example of this, and there's just, this is one example of many, is um, being caught in your sin. And if you hadn't have been caught, you'd still be on sinning, go on sinning without a care in the world. But because you're caught, you have to kind of make something emotional happen and kind of convince people that you're really sorry about what you did. I'll never do it again. And it's just this emotional experience, this sorrow. And, and uh, you know, this is just one case of a false repentance. Now, in this case, a person is afraid of damnation, but they're not afraid of sinning. Or if you repent just because you're afraid of hell... But you're not afraid of what iniquity will do to to you or to Jesus, what your sin has done against God. You're just afraid of hell. That's a sorrow without repentance. And the question you can ask yourself is, okay, how do I know if that's me and I'm not just struggling? Here's a question. If you got the word that hell was extinguished and you wouldn't have an eternal judgment... In, in terror and torment, would you still repent? Or as you hear that hell is extinguished, your repentance is extinguished with it. Well, right on, I can live life now and not worry about the judgment. If that's the case, that's a false repentance. If the only thing that's causing you to repent is just this fear of judgment, but you have no fear of what your sin has done to Christ, um, then, then that's a false repentance, Okay. And uh, number three, confession without repentance is not repentance, okay? That's just vocalizing something. That's just acknowledging that something is there. Confession without repentance is just agreement without change, okay? Or it's honesty, give you some props for honesty, without humility, Okay? It's honesty without brokenness of what your sin has done. It's just confession without the sense of how horrible your sin is and, and the consequences of it and ultimately what it did to Jesus, what it did to Jesus. Fourth thing, fourth sign of uh, confession that doesn't, or repentance that doesn't lead to life is that. You could show a work that appears to be repentance, but it's not repentance, okay? And an example of this is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, when it says Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that he was condemned with betraying Jesus. He was remorseful, and he brought back this 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, and he said, man, I am, have sinned, and I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, keep the money, what, what do we care And then he threw the silver down at their feet, ran out, and instead of running and and using that sorrow to run to the feet of Jesus and ask for forgiveness. You know, could you imagine if Judas Iscariot had repented and and was used as an apostle? But he didn't. He still tried to take matters into his own hands and he hung himself. And an act shows how severe this judgment was. Jesus says it would have been better if he never would have been born. But, But as he hung himself, Acts chapter 1 tells us that the rope finally broke. He burst forth in a field. It just burst out in the field. You know, kind of graphic. But he had this appearance. Oh, wow, wasn't that really cool when you heard about Judas going in and throwing the money in their faces? And, yeah, he just, it was kind of the confession without the repentance thing going on there. That's all kind of negative, isn't it? Let's not talk about that anymore. It's convicting, though, isn't it? I mean, this is me. I'm like, okay, Lord. What are signs of my repentance? So that's, that's the dark side. Let's look at the good, the positive end. What are signs that real repentance has taken place? And there's a few pre-points here. Hope you're taking notes. Start being a note taker, will you? A, a few pre-thoughts. Number one, do you have to feel a major sense of overwhelming guilt for your repentance to be true? I mean, we're talking like, do you have to every time rip your clothes, light your house on fire, scream, you know, all of that? No. And there's a gentle aspect of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Are there times when that happens and we rip our clothes and we pull out our hair and we put ashes on our face and and that's the type of, but then there's also the time where it's like, man, Lord, immediately you've convicted me about this word that I spoke about this person. I don't want that. I'm done. I'm done talking like that about this person, you know? And then another thought is, is there a perfect level of repentance? Now your repentance doesn't count until it's hit that perfect level where everything in your entire life has been taken care of. And you are now a sinless individual from this point forward. That's also not biblical. We know that as long as we're in this tent, we're going to be struggling with temptations. We're going to fall. you got the the promise that a righteous man falls seven times a day and yet rises again. There's that aspect. There's Romans 7, Paul, you know, that says, man, why am I doing the things that I don't want to do? And why am I not doing the things that I want to do? Wretched man that I am. What will deliver me from this bondage of sinful sin and death? You know, there's that aspect. You know, no Christian is going to be perfect. For the rest of eternity. You know, as Spurgeon says, man, repent, turn to Jesus, repent, turn to Jesus, repent, turn to Jesus. Okay? Now there's that balance, man. You you, you gotta understand that, however, practicing that same sin and continuing on in it without repentance, without sorrow, then you need to examine yourself, as Hebrews says, and see whether you're of the face. Faith or face. Third thing, real quick, pre-point. Remember, repentance is a gift. It's a gift that can be received. It's a gift that can be asked for. We can cry out for this gift. We see that here. He's granted to the Gentiles repentance. And then also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul's saying, man, if perhaps God might grant them repentance, that they might know the truth. And you, in your sinful state today, can cry out to Jesus, Jesus, grant me repentance today. Give me a hatred for sin. Help me to hate this sin, Lord. Give me strength. We can cry out for the gift and the power of repentance. So let's look at some signs of true repentance that leads to life. Number one, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. We talked about the false mark of worldly sorrow, but then there's godly sorrow that 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I want you to flip over there with me. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. And remember, this is written to a church that had a a fellow in their midst that was sleeping with his father's wife. Okay? And at the time, the Corinthians were kind of proud that they were so accepting of the sinful individual and they still let him worship with them. Paul rebuked them. Saying, you need to deal with this sin. You need to deal with this person. You need to do church discipline on this person. And the cool thing is, by 2 Corinthians, we see that this guy had repented. And here we're going to see the, the marks of his repentance. And one of those things was godly sorrow happened in this man's life. And he says there, I don't Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that your sorrow... Uh, uh, might, excuse me, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And what does godly sorrow look like? What diligence it produced in you. You know, okay, so let's look at what that would mean. You know, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Okay, so if you know you've got this sin going on and you've been confronted with it and your godly sorrow against it, you're going to be just having diligent actions and making sure you don't do that again. You're going to be setting up, you know, parameters. You're going to be cutting down the idol. You're going to be gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand, as Jesus says. You're going to be getting rid of that thing that's causing you to sin. So there will be a diligence in the repentance, okay? And it says, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. What vehement desire. In other words, this guy was on fire for Jesus. What zeal, what vindication. This guy's been set free. And it goes on to say, in all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And so if someone is genuinely repentant, they're going to be setting up ways to never fall in that area again. They're going to flee from sin. They're going to break up with that relationship. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. It's just going to be a natural fruit of repentance. They're going to work out salvation with fear and trembling. You know, it's, it's the works aspect of, of theology. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved for good works. You know, and so they're going to be looking at these areas. They're going to love Jesus. So they're going to be on fire for Jesus because they're going to love that forgiveness. And in all things, they're going to prove they were clear in the matter. Yes, he did this. Yes, she did that. But you know what? Who cares anymore? They're forgiven and they're not doing it anymore. Okay, so that's what godly sorrow produces. When you realize what your sin has done to Jesus, you're not going to want to do it anymore. Number two. True repentance leading to life will show, and this ties in, show works of repentance. This little poem says, "'Tis not enough to say we're sorry and repent and then go on from day to day just as we always went. You know, there will be a change. The Lord's put in you a new heart not to do that anymore. That's why 1 John says it's impossible for someone who names the name of Christ to continue on in sin. It's impossible because... Man, if you're struggling, you're going to have the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and he's going to move in you. Man, I've got to deal with this. I've got to go talk to a brother or sister about this. I've got to be diligent in this. I can't just continue on, continue on, continue on, having no sorrow, no remorse. Don't care. I'm just going to go the rest of my life. I'm going to keep doing this sin. That's just evidence the Holy Spirit's not in you, convicting you of the sin. But if you're a believer, you're going to hate the sin. You're going to hate the, the, the hand of the Lord being upon you night and day, convicting you, and you're going to have to get rid of it. Okay? So true repentance will show works of repentance. Number three, did the repentance last? Did this repentance last? And, and I think it's okay to ask how long. You know, a righteous man stumbles seven times a day, yet rises again. You know, we're not perfect. We know that. But how long did this repentance last? Well, I repented at church service and then by one o'clock I went and did it again that same day. Kind of wondering if repentance actually happened. So repent again. So repent, okay? And let's look at how that last repentance went and let's, you know, let's ask the Lord to grant a true repentance this time. And uh, so did that last? Or are you like a dog that returns to your vomit? You know, Throw up in the grass, make a half circle around the field, and then come back around like, I just can't leave it. It's not repentance. It's not repentance. By the way, that's biblical, not just trying to be gross. Okay. Sometimes I'll be gross, but not that time. Number four true repentance leading to life. You've got to ask yourself if there was no punishment for sins, and if there were no reward for righteousness, would you repent? Or are you only doing it so you don't go to hell or you don't get kicked out of the church or you don't get confronted? Is that the only reason you're doing it? Or are you only doing it because, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you never do that again. Heck yes. You know, that's not real repentance. Real repentance sees what their sin has done to Jesus and hates it and wants to get rid of it because they love Jesus. That's the number one motivating factor in repentance. Number five, an encouraging word to you. You might be asking, man, I've been trying so hard and I just can't repent. I keep falling back into it and I don't want to do it. You know, I don't want to do it and I just struggle. And let me just tell you this. I'm not removing from you all aspects of your responsibility of this. But I would say this, quit trying so hard in your own strength and use your strength and use your effort to cry out to Jesus for more faith, for more belief, for more power. Because in and of yourselves, you won't be able to white knuckle and conquer it. If that was the case and you were able to do that, Jesus would not have had to come and he wouldn't have had to die on the cross because you would have been strong enough. Nobody was strong enough. We can't do it. Same way, you know, sometimes I'm I'm getting ready to do lead worship and like really want to remember this one song and I just can't remember it. I can't remember the chord progression. I'll really try hard to remember, really try hard, really try, can't remember it. And I'll get up and walk out of the room and be like pouring some Pepsi or something and bing, it'll come. Wasn't even trying, came to my mind, you know? And so in that same aspect, if you could kind of transfer that over, man, rely on his power, rely on his power. and so that's where we're going to close today. And man, may the Lord grant us true repentance and it's good to examine yourself. You know, Hebrews tells us you need to examine ourselves. We examine each other to see whether we're of the faith. You know, there's just those true principles in scripture that, you know, an apple tree is not going to bear thorns or it's not an apple tree. A Christian is not going to continue on living in sin or he's not a Christian. The Lord will be working those things out of an individual. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we do just cry out today. We pray for godly sorrow, Lord. Lord, that you would bring our minds, bring our hearts to the place, Lord, where we would shed tears. Tears are a beautiful thing showing brokenness in our heart. We do pray, Lord, today, and and if this is you, man, maybe right now you want to just get on your knees where you're at and just show the Lord just a a posture of humility and just say, Lord, sorrow in me causes me to want to get on my knees, Lord. Sorrow in me causes me to want to weep, Lord, and to shed tears because of what my sin did to you. Punishing you, Jesus. Bruising you. Wounding you. Killing you. How can I continue on in this? Lord Jesus, here at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, bring godly sorrow over our sin. Every lustful thought, every willful disobedience, Every covetous thing we've done, every time we've stolen something, Lord, our lives of that haven't been blameless, Lord. Lord, our, our idolatry, we just confess it to you, and we just cry out, Lord, we cannot white knuckle it, Lord. Work a work of your spirit in us. Lord, produce in us diligence and zeal, vehement desire. Let us set us on fire for Jesus. Set us on fire for righteousness that can only come through you. Lord, where we've returned to the vomit of sin. Forgive us, Lord. We recognize just that you hate sin. You will judge sin. And Lord, because we love you, we don't want to love sin. We want to hate sin too. Lord, encourage those today that almost were discouraged by part of this message, saying, man, that sounds like me, and I don't know what to do. I just keep sinning and keep repenting, and I don't want to. Lord, encourage those hearts today to receive the gift of repentance today by faith. show them Lord just practically just the strategy of cutting off the hand cutting off the relationship with that person that causes sin getting out of those friendships that cause stumbling canceling the internet canceling the cable canceling showtime getting rid of that stuff Lord We'd rather go to heaven without that stuff than have that stuff here and go to hell for eternity, Lord. Grant repentance, Lord, for those in this room that they've never even tried to repent. Lord, they've never known that that you're a righteous God who's going to judge them for their sins one day. But the only way that they can be saved from that judgment is by believing in you and receiving the work you did on the cross where your blood was shed in place of their blood. And Lord, as they see that work you did on the cross, may they love you, Lord, and hate sin. And Lord, I pray that you would just fill them with your spirit, seal them with your spirit, Lord. What as Romans says, just your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're sons of God. Man, as we just close in song, we're gonna sing a part that uh, it's in the chorus and it just says, now unto him who is strong to deliver. And you can sing out to him today who's strong to deliver. And I just encourage you, get on your knees. Maybe go into the aisle or come up front and go in the back. It doesn't have to be up front. You can go in the prayer chapel or the prayer room and just leave the door open and get down on your face and cry to God. Ask for hatred of the sin. Confess to him your weakness. Receive the gift of repentance as you've asked for the gift of repentance. Man, allow this to be a place where you can shed tears over your sin. Let the Lord break your heart this morning against sin. Man, maybe just today, I, I know I'm just convicted, just of, I need to repent of just my heart towards men and stereotypes that I have and, you know, mild forms of racism that I hate to admit to call it that, but I guess that's what it is. And, prejudice against people's upbringings or their financial status or their hygiene discipline or whatever it is man maybe you would repent with me today of just that heart that i think i'm better than jesus that i'm not going to get off my throne and love on them and take them the gospel but no lord today we want to follow your example we want to go to the highways and the byways. Let's just spend some time repenting in this last song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks again for listening and God bless.